This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. There's a bill at the Utah legislature in its final stages that would overhaul the way public institutions like universities in the state use diversity, equity, and inclusion in their hiring practices and in the classes they teach. Now, the bill wouldn't ban DEI offices entirely at these institutions, but it does prohibit them from using what the sponsor calls differential treatment based on race or gender. So the school's can't require diversity statements as part of the hiring process. They have to, in the language of the bill, develop strategies to promote viewpoint diversity. And they have to train employees about keeping their political advocacy apart from their official duties. Today in the program, we're talking about how this DEI bill fits into a larger story because, of course, there are a number of these kinds of bills already passed or in the process of being passed in at least a dozen states. Over the weekend, the New York Times published a story by the investigative reporter Nicholas Confessori about the organized effort to kill DEI programs and ideas on college campuses. And as you'll hear, the effort is centered at a think tank in Southern California called the Claremont Institute. Confessori begins his story in Texas in late 2022 when the Claremont Institute had managed to get the attention of the governor's office. Soon enough, within a few weeks, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said that a bill to ban DEI would be on his wish list for the legislative session. And what the groups behind this did was that they produced a report looking at DEI at Texas A&M, a public university. And they cataloged all of the people who had something like DEI in their job title. And they said, DEI is a terrible thing. Here's what it really means. It's not what you think it means. It means, you know, left-way ideology and indoctrination. And those findings were then cited at a state senate hearing by that foray to Dan Patrick. And the bill passes. And it becomes one of the strongest DEI bans in the country. It's sort of the high watermark in some ways. It's a late example of an effort that really began some years earlier in the wake of the George Floyd protests and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. And the story really begins in 2021 after the defeat of President Donald Trump for re-election. Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected when people at the Claremont Institute and some of their ideological allies on kind of the Trump right were trying to figure out how to beat back this social movement that they really opposed, that they really worried about, that they felt overemphasized issues of identity and race in ways that they believe are bad for the country. And they started talking about it amongst themselves. I should point out we reached out to the sponsors of the Utah DEI bill and asked if they had been influenced by or contacted by the Claremont Institute. They told us no. In fact, neither of the sponsors said they had ever heard of it. Back to Nicholas Confessori. So I started reporting on this over the summer. I was actually working on a different story. I was working on a profile of Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. And I was exploring how he had arrived 
at his worldview on education, because at that point in the campaign, uh, the governor had made his battles against wokeness and diversity trainings and uh, critical race theory a centerpiece of his presidential campaign. He really put it front and center. And so I wanted to know where he had come to his ideas and how he had developed them. And it turned out he had this really close affinity with this think tank in California called the Claremont Institute. He had been in their world um, in certain ways uh, since he was in Congress. And he shared an intellectual affinity for their ideas about how the American elite uh, had become really disconnected from the rest of the country in really pernicious ways. And I started looking into who he was kind of in touch with in that world. And it was reported that uh, DeSantis had had a whole conference for his donors featuring Claremont Institute scholars. And so I started filing public records requests, trying to get more details of the kinds of things they talked about. And what I found was a treasure trove, really, of uh, internal correspondence and external correspondence between the Claremont people and others in their world, some directly involved in their anti-DEI campaign, and some who were just kind of fellow travelers, uh, shared their viewpoint, mm. or working on their own projects. We're talking about something like more than, as you say, 5,000 of these documents obtained through public records requests. So they were... Um, budgets and draft reports and, you know, grant proposals, all those kinds of things. But you also mentioned how they include this casual correspondence with allies around the country. And this is the part of, I think, the story that's also uh, really interesting, <laughs> that they're revealing some pretty candid views of course, stuff that you wouldn't share in public. Do you want to say something about that part of the story? So what I found in these documents is uh, a sense that they understood that some of their you know, social views were at a minimum uh, you know, controversial <laughs> uh, or would be to a broader audience. So, for example, in one email, um, a guy named Scott Yainer, who is a professor at Boise State University, who is also a fellow at Claremont, uh, is talking about uh, an essay he wants to write for a conservative journal called First Things. Um, uh, and his editor was encouraging him to say things like, our sexual culture will not be healed until we once again agree that homosexuality belongs in the closet and that a healthy society requires patriarchy. Now, there are certainly people who have those views, but I think they understand uh, that those are not popular views, and that if they wage a war on DEI while expressing those views explicitly, they won't get as far. And so what I find interesting is that if you read the essay, when it was eventually published, it doesn't quite go that far. It's kind of sanded down. But there's a lot of talk like that about race and sexual identity. Um, there was a friend of theirs at the Manhattan Institute, a woman named Heather McDonald, uh, who recently published a book called When Race Trumps Merit how the pursuit of equity sacrifices excellence, destroys beauty, and threatens lives. She was not formally connected to Claremont's anti-DEI campaign, but uh, she kind of has her own corner um, in the world uh, of, of, of these ideas. You know, she wrote about how one day she was walking through her neighborhood in Manhattan and saw these nannies of color, that's her term, 
uh, taking kids back home. And in this email, she rails against career women. And her example was an associate in a law firm who wants to, quote, outsource the once in a lifetime unrepeatable experience of raising a unique child to someone else, especially someone from the low IQ third world. Um, and so I found it pretty striking that, you know, she's walking around her neighborhood and she sees uh, nannies of color walking school kids back to their apartments. And her first thought is, man, it's terrible that all these career women have outsourced their child raising to low IQ people. I think that that's, that's frankly racist. Uh, so you see this real hostility, not just to uh, what you might consider current, you know, voguish ideas coming out of DEI offices about about equity or speech, but really, you know, the entire rights revolution going back to the 60s. So it's it's real throwback thinking in that sense, but it's thinking that they want to return to. They believe that we can't have a good country unless we can kind of turn the clock back. I, I want to ask you about the, the, the playbook that was revealed in these documents you write about the fact that one of the ideas was they were going to partner with these state think tanks and conservative institutions. They were going to catalog these DEI programs, really go through you know, the personnel at public universities, find DEI where that existed. And then what? I guess then take all of that and write reports, lobby public officials, um, helped sort of help create what like templates for for legislation. Yeah, I think I think basically, in most of these reports, uh, they're all pretty similar. They're based on Google searches and public records requests, and they basically develop kill lists of DEI programs at each of these institutions. And what they realized was, okay, so we can't necessarily go after a DEI program at a private university. That or we could, but it's harder. But in conservative states or redly or kind of red states where Republicans control the legislature and control the purse strings for, for public universities, that's a real lever. So what we can do is go around the schools entirely. We're just gonna present these reports to state lawmakers and say, mm-hmm. look at all these DEI offices. We're gonna lay out our rationale for why we think DEI is actually code for a hateful and divisive and un-American ideology, and we're going to help, and we're going to help persuade these lawmakers to just ban these programs if we can, or limit them if we can't persuade them to do a full ban. Uh, and they found local think tanks and and kind of advocacy groups. The the, the distinction is, is 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 a blurry sometimes, right? But they found these local outfits that would sort of split the costs of doing the report and provide kind of boots on the ground in legislature. So we saw that in, in, in Tennessee. We saw that um, in Texas. We saw it a bit in Florida, although in Florida they had a real ally in the governor's office. That was their main point of contact. So that, has been, and so that was the playbook. Hmm. And I think they had um, substantial results in, in four states, and they were making progress in a few more. Um, and I, I, I think what they've found is if you have a red state with an ambitious governor <laughs> who, who wants to run for something, yeah, they could probably get a hearing for some kind of a ban because there's a competition among those, those Republican officials to see who can be tougher on this stuff. Now, in some of these states, I will say, 
the legislation was a little different. It might not be a full ban. So in yeah. Tennessee, and I suspect maybe in your state, in Utah. Yes, in Utah. Uh, you're right. Not a yeah. full ban. Yeah, I think they're... I think that there that there was a little more of a balancing effort where there was a lot of concern about the idea that these DEI offices were chilling speech or punishing conservatives. And so what they tried to do in some of these states is craft language where uh, essentially colleges couldn't punish students or faculties for sort of not buying into a DEI training or a, a particular idea that like they wanted to take aim at what they saw as the indoctrinating part of this um, without completely banning any kind of DEI office, which, as we said earlier in the show, they have different functions, right? They, 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 the, this is a big bucket. And so in some states, has been a bit more of a targeted approach or a narrower approach. So while you didn't identify or even try to identify, you know, like a causal link between the legislation being debated in Utah right now, you can, it, it might be fair to say that that you couldn't see elements of that playbook in that legislation here? Is that fair to say? Uh, you know, I, I have no reporting as to whether or not the Claremont network was, was active in Utah. Um, yeah. You know, one trick with public records request based reporting is that you only see what you find. <laughs> um, and if you don't have the right keywords in your request, yeah. then you're not going to see something. So, but... Certainly, I think it's fair to say that there is a wave of discussion in the conservative policymaking world about DEI and critical race theory and all these different topics. And there was a wave of energy and activity around finding different ways to ban them. And I, you know, I saw model legislation that was being circulated, uh, you know, not just Claremont, but with other uh, groups that work on, on these kinds of issues. And they were all looking in different ways for overlapping reasons, uh, mm-hmm. for ways to kind of crack down on these ideas and these offices. L- let me ask you finally, uh, you, you write that uh, according to one document, the Claremont organizers um, had, uh, as they put it, hoped state lawmakers across the country would pass sweeping prohibitions on teaching you know, social justice programming, as they put it. Um, with the Utah bill and others, it seems like it, if not the actual prohibition itself, the effort is spreading and they can score this as a win in some ways? I think you're going to see um, different branches of this counter-reaction. I think mm-hmm. in conservative states, you're going to see continuing efforts at the legislative level to limit or ban or hobble these programs. And and they're gonna work mostly through the public universities where they have power because that allows the activists and the advocates to just go around the universities, right? And that that is part of an argument they're making, which is that these universities need to be more accountable to elected officials, that they serve a public purpose and state lawmakers and governors should be able to decide what they do. And then you have the private universities. And I said before, I think this is true, that criticism or skepticism of different aspects of DEI programs span the political spectrum. It's not limited to the right. Um, But I think 
in the middle, there is more of a consensus against aspects of DEI that, that limit freedom of speech on campus, right? So there's a, there's a kind of a broad belief among a lot of academics, liberal and conservative, that the field should be pretty wide for ideas. And I've talked to professors uh, at private universities who identify themselves as liberals, and they all are involved in conversations where they want to just kind of recenter their institutions a bit. They're not looking for bans on DEI offices, right? What they, what they want is limits on things like DEI statements, which we haven't talked about, uh, but it's mentioned in my story. Sure. And these are things that, you know, at, at, some, at some universities, at a, at a fair number of them, if you apply for a job uh, in academia, you've got to submit a statement that sort of attests to your commitment to furthering diversity. And some of these schools use a grading system for those statements that essentially amounts to like an ideological litmus test about particular approaches to diversity. You can't do it this way, you have to do it this way. And if you don't propose doing it the right way, you lose points in your job application. I think there's like a fairly big emerging consensus that those kinds of statements, that those kinds of requirements are antithetical to academic freedom. Uh, and I suspect we'll see movements even among liberal institutions in, 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 in more moderate or liberal states to kind of take a second look at those. But it's not clear to me exactly where this ends up. I suspect we'll see it fragment. We'll see these approaches really fragment. We'll see you know, new approaches in red states and uh, new approaches in blue states. Hmm. Nicholas Confessori, thank you very much for the time. Thank you. Nicholas Confessori, he's a political and investigative reporter at the New York Times. You can find a link to his article about the anti-DEI crusade on our website. We'll take a break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about this movement to ban or limit diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at public institutions like universities. There's a bill set to pass the Utah legislature this week that would dramatically limit the use of DEI programs and ideas at these institutions. We just heard from the New York Times reporter Nicholas Confessori, who pointed out it's not just conservatives who are critical of what they see as the excesses of DEI like the journalist Connor Friedersdorf. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's been skeptical of what he sees as a larger DEI bureaucracy. I first noticed something when there was a controversy at Yale University about Halloween costumes and whether Halloween costumes ought to be something that students kind of choose for themselves without guidance from authority figures or whether... The deans ought to send out an email giving people advice on Halloween costumes, and, and this turned into just a kind of tremendous protest against one professor, Nicholas Christakis, for an email that he and his wife collaborated on that seemed to me pretty anodyne. And it was in that moment that I realized that students on college campuses were starting to think about social justice in a different way. 
you know, you can go back to the free speech movement in Berkeley, the anti-Vietnam War protests, the Freedom Rides, and see all these examples of student activism that aim to change the outside world in a profound way. And we look back and we cheer many of those instances of activism. And there's something about the Yale protest where I thought, this seems more about purifying the environment that they're in than going into the outside world and changing it for the most marginalized. And in the years since covering it, I began to focus less on the students and more on the administrators and the ways that they were, I don't know if they were responding to that culture or, or if they shaped it initially, but compared to when I was an undergraduate back in 1998 to 2002 at Pomona College, the number of administrators just across the United States changed tremendously. There are just so many more people engaged in micromanaging student life. So I suppose in some sense, if you wanted to really go back to the beginning of, of when did particular controversies like this happen, you could point to just the rise of this new administrative apparatus that was going to take a greater role in mm. kind of shaping student life on campus. And ultimately, that gave way to controversies about exactly how they ought to be uh, shaping student life if they were going to be taking such an active role. I wanted to get you to respond to the the word choice of Governor Spencer Cox, our governor. He said that the diversity statements at universities, and there's been some dispute about whether or not, in fact, they are required. But let's set that aside for a minute. Just the, the idea of these diversity statements at universities, Governor Cox said they border on being evil. Now, now I I guess I wanted you to respond first of all to what, what do you make of the use of that word, evil? It's a, it's a kind of an emotional way to put it, don't you think? It is. It's a loaded word, and it isn't yeah. one that I've used when objecting no. pretty strenuously to these statements. I would say that uh, mandatory diversity statements are coercive, uh, mm -hmm. and I think that they transgress against notions of academic freedom and our healthy skepticism of litmus tests. There's certainly frustration about yeah. this topic, and I do think that there is a frustration with the feeling of being coerced. Um, you know, the way that a mathematics professor that I recently interviewed um, yeah. put it to me, he, he was saying that, you know, even if you asked me to affirm that water was wet, I would object to it because I don't think it should be the role of the university yeah. To, yeah. to force me to, to say anything. And once you yeah. go down that road, you're going in, the, in a bad direction. You're going to get um, preference falsification. You're going to get people looking out for their jobs rather than speaking the truth. And that's not the road we want to go down in our institutions of higher education. I want to actually talk more about that, Professor, in the way you write about it, because I think it reveals something about the nature of the the trends that anyway he identified and that you write about. But one of the things Governor Cox said is that um, with these statements, universities are forcing people into a political framework. So I want to ask about the kind of ideological part of this question. One of the things you've written is that academic freedom advocates – you, you write, they can credibly argue that scholars must be free to criticize, 
or even denigrate God and the nuclear family and America and motherhood, and you go down this list, but you say, not if academics are effectively prohibited from criticizing progressivism's sacred values. Explain what you mean exactly by these sacred values of progressivism. They seem lately, just based on the kinds of things that people police and the kinds of things people get upset about at universities, to be diversity, equity, and inclusion, to come under that rubric. And I almost hesitate to use those three words because what they mean is so contested. And if you're not well-versed in this conversation, you can hear those words and get a distorted impression of what people are actually arguing about. And so I try and foreground these conversations by asking at least older listeners to think back after uh, the September 11th terrorist attacks and that law, the Patriot Act, right? And on one hand, who would be against patriotism, right? But, But as we all remember, what different people meant by patriotism was very contested and there was a lot of feeling that the word was being abused. And so critics of the diversity, equity, and inclusion or DEI bureaucracies in universities and in corporations for that matter really feel that these words are being invoked in misleading ways. Many of the people who are critical of these bureaucracies actually themselves are advocates of diversity in certain respects or or define certain ways. And so it's important to keep that in mind to understand what the different factions in this kind of ongoing debate are, are thinking as they, <laughs> as they vie with one another for what's going to happen. Let's come back to that story you were mentioning. There's this mathematics professor you write about at the University of Michigan. His name is uh, Michigan. His name is Alexander Barvanok, which I, I think this story illustrates certain, for me anyway, certain dynamics of how DEI works, at least according to people who think it's it's not working. Tell us about this professor, first of all, and what you wanted to learn from him. Yeah, this was a a professor of mathematics who had done his early graduate work under the the Soviet regime. He was a Soviet immigre. And this generation of people who experienced communism before the fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall, they always fascinate me because, you know, if anyone knows what it was like to live in a coercive system, was them. And and so because we kind of all agree that the system they operated under was objectionable and inconsistent with what we think of as the values of a university, I always think it's fascinating to get their read on what is happening in the present. And again, that might be, you know, after a terrorist attack when there's a certain pressure to say certain things or not say certain things about world conflict. But so too, I'm interested in what they have to say about progressive leadership in universities and diversity, equity, and inclusion deans and the kinds of pressures that faculty feel to say or not say certain things. And so what Professor Bravernock was objecting to was this trend in universities of mandatory diversity statements in hiring. And he wanted his discipline to come out strongly against those as just inappropriate regardless of what the underlying ideology people were being asked to echo was. You write about this growth of of this bureaucracy for DEI. You've called it an industry, a multi-billion dollar industry. Talk about this part. Colleges and universities 
employ many more administrators per student than they once did. And when combined with the industry of consultants who talk about diversity of equity inclusion or build themselves under DEI, it has become just a, a tremendous industry. And it's actually an industry that is in a bit of recession if, uh, if the headlines that I see in, in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere are to be believed. Um, you know, there is some research literature on whether DEI interventions actually succeed in anything. And, you know, credible scholars have argued that actually, no, when we look at organizations that do this, uh, we, we don't see the sorts of outcomes that uh, proponents of DEI bureaucracies themselves would want to point to. Hmm. Earlier this month, uh, Claudine Gay resigned as the president of Harvard University. And you say, in fact, what you think the core of the conflict was there was, as you put it, the desirability of the policies she presided over in the realm of DEI. And so it does raise the question of what is the role of a university? This is another thing that Spencer Cox, our, our governor, has been talking about. He wants the colleges and the universities in the state to stop commenting on current events. He says, we don't need our institutions to take a position on those things, which raises the question of what is the role of a university? Um, do, the, do those two things come together in your mind? You know, the idea of getting involved, making statements, you know, because it's, to me, it's like, what, what is the role of a, of, of a university anyway? Yeah, you know, I think it was in the Calvin report at Yale I think I'm remembering this correctly, the, the notion that the university ought to be the place where the debates happen, not the place that takes a side in the debate. And yeah. I, you know, I think that that's basically correct, that the thorniest questions in the world, the most intractable questions in the world, universities are a place where we try to put people together, not just to not just to yell at each other about these questions, that can happen anywhere, but to really dig into the details of them, to learn the history, the sociology, the psychology. And if the president of the university is using their bully pulpit in order to take one side on any of these contested questions, it does seem to make sense that the faculty members and the staff and the students might be a bit more constrained than their ability to figure it out for themselves, to say what they really believe. And so I think that there is wisdom in what the governor is saying. So is this um, trend growing or retreating? You mentioned that there's a level, a growing level of opposition, that there seems to be this reckoning so I'm wondering, was this a phase? I think we're at a pivot point right now on college campuses that there was this period that encompassed the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and the George Floyd moment and the rise of these DEI bureaucracies and the particular attitudes towards speech and expression on campus that was kind of bundled in complicated ways uh, with this period that I date back to about 2013. And that if we were going to look for 
a bookend that ended that period. It was the October 7th attacks in Israel. When Hamas did that and when people on college campuses responded in polarized ways, it reminded me of the September 11th attacks and and people responding to that in polarized ways, um, just in the sense of this massive geopolitical event totally changing what the focus of conversation is. For better or worse, this is the most polarizing issue suddenly on college campuses. And that is putting administrators in a very difficult position because they've spent a large part of the last decade being more and more sensitive to kinds of speech that make any student feel uncomfortable. (laughs) The Israel-Palestine debate uh, is almost unsurpassed in generating strong feelings on both sides and feelings of discomfort precisely because the stakes are so high. And so to me, to have this be the focus of conversation on college campuses, it's not tenable to both adjudicate the Israel-Palestine conflict and to be hypersensitive to anything that one might say that could make anyone feel uncomfortable. So where are we supposed to adjudicate all of this, do you think? Um, The the University of Utah has now said they will uh, eliminate any diversity questions or statements from its hiring process. So they sort of voluntarily did that. But, you know, I'm sure probably influenced by the statements of the governor. Um, And now we have Republican lawmakers in this state who are working on legislation that would certainly limit or ban some of these statements and, and DEI efforts? Is that the place to do it? Do you ban it? I mean, how comfortable you feel if, th- if that's the thing that happens now that we just pass these laws that eliminate all of that? I would say I've seen two ways that are examples of how not to do it. Hmm. I have done some reporting in Florida where Governor DeSantis has made various pushes to try to um, kind of prohibit this progressive ideology, not only from the administrative apparatus of colleges, which I think is perfectly appropriate, but from the lips of faculty members or even students. And I think that you need to let faculty members and students engage in free speech and protect their academic freedom if you want to have a well-functioning university system. On the other hand, I've also done a lot of reporting in California where I live, and there are very heavy-handed moves in the state of California to mandate that professors make diversity statements and adhere to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, to me, neither Florida nor California are the way we need a middle ground. And, and the distinction that I always draw when you hear about different states experimenting with different laws is there's a huge distinction between a law that says you can't have this ideology be part of the administrative apparatus of the college. You can't have deans enforcing it. You can't have offices dedicated to it, right? To me, that's fine. Universities ought to be neutral bodies that don't have ideological offices of any kind in it. But the reason that we want universities to be free of ideological offices at the administrative level is precisely so that faculty and students can seek the truth and engage in debate as they see fit as individuals. And so if you go farther than that and you start having laws that step on the ability of faculty or students to engage in free speech, then 
you have a problem that is going to undermine truth-seeking just as much as a heavy-handed ideological bureaucracy would. Connor Friedersdorf, thank you very much. Thanks, I appreciate it. Connor Friedersdorf, he's a staff writer at The Atlantic. You can find a link to his articles on our webpage, radiowest.org. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. It seems pretty likely a bill that would overhaul the use of diversity, equity, and inclusion at public institutions will pass the Utah legislature this week. We've been talking about how that bill fits into a larger national trend. And we invited the president of the University of Utah, Taylor Randall, to join us on the program. The university has said it will do away with the questions about diversity during its hiring process. And we wanted to know more about that decision. President Randall turned us down. But we did get a yes from the president of Weber State University, Brad Mortensen. He joined us earlier this week. I think it's a really interesting time in our nation's view of higher education. For one, the fact that we're even having this debate, I think, shows that there's tremendous value for higher education and the role it plays in our society hmm. on all sides of the political aisle, there's some recognition that we need higher education to be working for us. Hmm. And higher education, I don't think, should really be a polarized issue because everyone I talk to agrees we want more people to be educated. I think that pushes us to the point of finding out how we expand access to populations that have historically been underserved by hmm. our higher education institutions. So maybe in a naive way, I try to to keep this in perspective that this debate, which is really intense mm -hmm. and difficult, demonstrates the value that folks have in higher education and why the work that we do is so important. Are you seeing what's going on right now at the Utah legislature related to this, this bill or series of bills? Do you see it as part of a larger culture war movement? I mean, there's been reporting about how this sort of fits into an agenda. Um, of a group of activists and academics who have been determined to abolish these DEI programs at public universities. Are you seeing what's going on right now in Capitol Hill as part of that movement? You can't look at the, you know, the trackers that are out there that show DEI legislation that's happening in multiple states across the country. And uh, I mean, there certainly is some type of broader national movement that's happening beyond what's going on here in in the Utah legislature. Now, I think, you know, our legislators and the governor are trying to find a unique way to adapt this um, policy as it goes through the process to, to meet our needs here. But, but I certainly feel like and have been told part of the reason behind this is, you know, what happened at the congressional testimony mm -hmm. um, in early December with the, with three the presidents, presidents. Um, and there and what the national response has been to the um, Hamas attacks and then the conflict in Israel and Gaza and Palestine and all the atrocities there and how we've seen um, protests nationally. Mm -hmm. 
um, some in the state, but more at a national level and folks yeah. being concerned about that. Uh, the funny thing is, is that we all believe in freedom of expression and free speech as long as we agree with it. Yeah. And in some ways, I think it's good for all of us to have a wake-up call that you know, this beautiful thing and ideal that we hold up, freedom of expression, means that we have to figure out how to have difficult conversations with each other without pushing the panic button all the time. And Are lawmakers pushing the panic button a bit? Um, hey, Utah lawmakers. You know, I, th- I think we can do better at fostering diverse viewpoints on our campus. Huh. And, hmm. and I think higher education institutions can step into this space where, where there is polarization and disagreement and demonstrate we can be a place where we can model how to have difficult conversations yeah. where we don't agree, um, but still do them in a, in a civil way and a respectful way. If, if we can't do it at colleges and universities, then, yeah. then I get gravely concerned. There seems to be some question um, about what is actually happening on university campuses and what lawmakers think is happening on campuses. One of the key points that Governor Cox has made, he refers to what he describes as these hiring statements that he said you have to sign, I'm quoting him, that you have to sign to get hired. He called, as you well know, he's called that practice bordering on evil. Do you have such statements at Weber State? We do not now. We we have had some positions that have used those diversity statements as part of – not that you hire to – and this was an interesting debate that happened after the governor's comment, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have to hire those as a pledge once you get the job or is it just something you submit as part of your employment application? And, and we have had those in the past. That's something that we've moved away from hmm. over the last year or so. And just, just to step back a little bit from why why do these things even exist – I think it gets to this idea that, I mean, there are federal laws that we all follow against discrimination yeah. um, in our hiring practices based on race, religion, ethnicity, gender, and we have to follow those. At the same time, and I've talked to students who've had this experience who said, I never had a teacher look like me until I came to college. And the impact that that had on them seeing potential in themselves they didn't know that they had. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to walk this fine line where we're abiding by the federal laws against discrimination and yet trying to be more representative of the community that we're serving. Diversity statements were developed as one tool years ago at some institutions to try to help meet that need. Mm -hmm. We found at Weber that they just become a little performative and that we can do a lot better job if we focus on the position, we focus on what's going to serve our students the um, to meet their needs, to mm-hmm. help them grow and advance and, and, and try to have the conversation that way. And then we, we try to encourage our hiring committees to think broadly about the abilities people bring to the table. It's not just about, you know, well, someone went to the same school that I did, so therefore they're good for this job. Yeah. You know, really find out what attributes they have. The governor has said um, this costs too much money, these DEI initiatives on university, uh, public university campuses, and that you're not, in fact, seeing the outcomes. How, how do you respond to that? And may, maybe you could give us a sense of, you don't have to have a dollar figure, but how much money do you allocate for DEI efforts at Weber State, for example? It's interesting 
Because, you know, first of all, to do that, you have to define what DEI is. Mm. And that's been, you know, we've tried to do that as a system of institutions. Do you have a DEI office? We have, um, uh, let's see, uh, two years, no, three years ago now, we created a division of equity, diversity, and inclusion at Weber State Mm. and, and have a vice president over that area. And if this legislation passes, we'll have to look at how we're structured, you know, based on what finally goes into the law to see um, how how we do that. Um, So we spend, depending on the definition, anywhere from between 300,000 and one and a half million dollars, which is, you know, less than a percent of our total institutional budget. Mm -hmm. But it's serving a group of students that, you know, have been marginalized and are underrepresented on our campus in terms of the percent of the population they make up in our community. You're saying it's worth it? I think so. And Do they work? That's the question. And, and, and that's, it seems like it also raises this larger question of how do you quantify whether or not yeah. something like that works? You know, we brought in a group from Georgia State University that's had a lot of success um, there at not only um, helping their – and they're in downtown Atlanta – uh, they have a large black population, a large Latino and Hispanic population, and a relatively large white population. Yeah. And they had gaps between those groups. But they've been able to institute programs over the last dozen years that have not only eliminated the gaps, but they've raised the outcomes for everybody. So we have a Weber State Student Success Playbook, we call it, modeled after what they did in Georgia, to really try to help everyone succeed at higher levels. We try to have you know interventions specific to different populations. Hmm. I could line up rows of alumni who've benefited from our programs that now fall under the DEI label. I don't think they're overfunded. We probably need to put more resources towards these type of student success playbook initiatives that will, we know will benefit all of those um, populations that have been underserved in the past. You said something a moment ago about the fact that you had a, a sense of um, c- confidence that, that the governor and maybe lawmakers would find a unique way to to deal with their concerns that may not have been as um, onerous as you're seeing in some places. And I, I kind of wanted to get a sense of what you what you mean by that. The bill sponsors say, for example, they, they're not necessarily eradicating DEI offices at universities, but instead are, this is their word, transforming them into a support system that's not, that's just not based on race. You know, it's something broader. Is that what you mean by the kind of the unique spin that they're putting on this? And do you think it's effective? Yeah. I mean, one, one thing, first and foremost, is they've carved out a space for academic freedom and, and the things that are happening in classrooms. And so I think that's uh, unique, uh, at least compared to some of the things I understand are happening in Florida and Texas, where the laws are being passed that, you know, about critical race theory yeah. in the class. Yeah. Um, this legislation, um, as it's currently drafted, is not touching that. So I think I think that um, is one thing that separates it a little bit. That feels to me like a like less draconian measures than we've seen or are hearing about in, in other states. But um, but let me so okay so let me let me point out some of the things that they are wanting to require in this bill. 
Um, there's a requirement for universities to publish online all of the titles and the syllabi for mandatory courses. They want people to know what's going on in there, it sounds like. Um, there's a requirement to conduct these campus expression climate surveys, ask students, ask faculty and staff to sort of give their sense can they, in fact, if you're like, I'm guessing like a conservative, can you express yourself freely in these, in these classes? It would require the school to train employees, train all employees on the separation of personal political advocacy from an institution's business. Uh, it would require that the university develop these strategies to promote viewpoint diversity, which implies that there isn't viewpoint diversity on your campus and other state, you know, you know, public university campuses. Right. I think that gets reflected a lot in uh, maybe if you were to take uh, one indicator of that, well, who are the speakers you're inviting to your campus? Yeah. yeah. And we might have the business administration department inviting someone and uh, the social work department inviting someone and our students invite someone and and most of those go unnoticed, but then you'll have someone who's extreme on one side or the other that gets invited by one group, and and then we all deal with it. Well, where's our viewpoint diversity on that? Mm-hmm. We can do a better job about being intentional, I think, and collaborate, at least at Weber State, collaborating across the board of, well, who are we bringing and and who can be thought-provoking, and can we get two people to agree to sit on the same stage who have different viewpoints and have the debate right in front of us. So you could be, as you say, we can be more intentional about that. But I guess the question is, does it require a law? Does it require a bill to force you to be more intentional? You know, in my position, I would always say no. President Mortensen, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Doug. Brad Mortensen. He's the president of Weber State University. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you with ideas or comments or feedback. You can email us at radiowest at KUER.org. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.